student and family ministries over at Montvale Evangelical Free Church, a sister church to you all. And it is a special joy. I love coming over here. I've only preached here one other time. This church reminds me of the church that I grew up in, just kind of like dimensionally, you know what I mean? And that was an Assemblies of God church, so people would just like yell out things all the time during the service. So I kind of expect that, so don't be embarrassed if somebody screams out. That's what I'm looking for, but um, I'm very glad to be here. Kevin asked me to come out just a couple days ago, and we kind of didn't know what to expect, so it's also kind of a special joy that we get to bring our members of our spiritual family. I'm going to tell you the truth, and and I can tell you this because he's not here, but we, we love Kevin. And I'm a part of the same ministerial uh, segment that, that, that Kevin's a part of. We, we, we meet once a month. And what strikes me about Kevin, besides his shoes, which we need to take a love offering or something and help him, he's wearing these, like, heads that his mom gave him in, like, 1984. I don't know what's up with that. But what strikes me about him is how hard he works and how much he prepares. But it's hard for people, right? He cares for people. And I'm just going to tell you the truth, especially kind of out here on the East Coast. That's a rare thing today. And so I don't think it's out of place for me to say, I, I believe you all to be fortunate to have him here. Uh, I love him like a brother, and he's a sweet guy. So it's very special for me to be here. What you've just watched, actually, is a video of a PBS series on the Battle of Britain, and it is Memorial Day weekend. And so I don't want to go too far without at least kind of pausing. Now, those obviously are British people, and Memorial Day is our opportunity to remember Americans that have died in, in conflict. But what I do want to point out is that this you're hearing from a lady Uh, named Edith Heath, and when she was 21, she was engaged to be married to Dennis Whistler, a a pilot with the RAF, and throughout the course of the Battle of Britain, which you heard him say that they went up, he was going up for his fourth sortie of the day, that means that he went up, flew around, ran out of gas, shot up other planes down, and the Luftwaffe just kept coming, and so he would land, fill, drink water, go back up, and so the fourth time... She was listening on the radio. She was a radio operator, and you saw the footage there. There's a big table, and they're just trying to figure out where all their units are to get the right place, people to the right place. And so she hears over the radio when her fiancé is, is, is shot down and plummets into the Thames River and was ultimately killed. And so you here you have, she was in her late 80s when this was recorded, and I actually heard about her for the first time reading an article when she was 91. She remembered 75 years later how every single minute and every single detail of that story unfolded before her. And, and we can kind of picture that, can't we? So two things from that. First is it is Memorial Day weekend, and, and it's right that we pause and we remember not just those who have sacrificed so much, but we think of their families too, don't we? But then also what struck me as I'm kind of listening to her story is how loyal she was to his memory. In the article that I read, she actually kept all the letters that he had written to her And she kept them until the day she died, and she has since passed away, in which time all those letters were burned. She didn't want other people to read them. She just wanted to hang on to them. And that's where it kind of hits us in the heart spaces, doesn't it? I think it becomes a little bit of a teachable moment, because we really don't see relationships handled like that very often anymore, do we? In fact, we're hard-pressed to come up with an example of somebody who has just simply been that loyal to somebody else's memory. It's such an uncommon thing, and I'm not going to kind of hit on the soft targets of like media or stories or whatever else, movies that we see today. It's just an uncommon thing in our lives, the reality, the fabric of our lives where someone is just simply that committed. So even when someone has passed on 75 years later, you can see she's kind of very emotionally connected still to those things that had taken place so long ago, right? And so what I hope we take is that maybe, maybe for kind of all the assault on how relationships work today, maybe we're missing something, right? 
And if you see that, I don't know if this is true for you, but it was for me when I watched it. I kind of want that, not the tragedy part of it, but it kind of makes you want an experience that's so rich that years down the road, you still just have this this sense of the way things were in that very moment, right? So how do we do that? How do we live our entire life in a way that honors a moment? Now, if this is true horizontally, and I think it is true horizontally of horizontal relationships, if we're suffering from some kind of relational apathy, and I think many of us are, then the truth is certainly our vertical relationship with God equally will suffer. And the truth is that is just not the testimony of these scriptures, is it? We don't see the early church or the disciples just kind of apathetic in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They are just like lit on fire all the time, right? And so they're just burning with this passion for Jesus and it's kind of making its way out into boldness in their speech and and these kind of supernatural things taking place and how they pray and how they approach people and how they live their lives. It's a very different brand of Christianity, honestly, than the one we see practiced today. And it's something that we can't fabricate, we can't make up, we can't seize for ourselves, and unfortunately, it appears to me it's becoming increasingly rare. Something seems missing. Now, Hosea 6, if you would turn to Hosea chapter 6 in your pew Bible, I actually wrote down the, the page number in your pew Bible. It's page 893, if that's where you want to go, the pew Bible. Uh, at page 893, but we're going to be looking at Hosea chapter 6 today. Hosea 6 finds Israel at a very similar crossroads. The passion for God that they once had enjoyed when God was doing new things for them and their romance was fresh and new, unfortunately that passion had begun to cool. And Hosea as a prophet recognizes that something is changing, something is missing. And so he writes at a very tumultuous time in Israel's history and life. So those of us who know their Bible history will remember that the kingdom of Israel was divided. And so you have Judah down in the south, and then you have Israel up in the north, right? And after a season of extraordinary prosperity in both of those kingdoms, Israel finds that its kind of moral orbit is in a steep decay. And the same was true of Judah to a lesser degree. And so Hosea finds himself ministering to this northern kingdom of Israel as the last prophet that would speak to them before their great enemy Assyria in the northeast would simply come down and eradicate the entire nation and take them captive. And how God commanded Hosea to minister is remarkable. Now, odds are very high you're going to be bored at some point during this today, so if you want, you can read in Hosea chapters 1 through 3 and see exactly what God told Hosea to do Because it's kind of dirty and profane. I hate to even bring it up, but it's perverted. Hosea is called by God to marry a woman that makes a living as a prostitute. Kids that are in the room, your parents will explain to you exactly what that is. So Israel will understand that she is playing a role such as this. The betrothed and beloved of God is lusting after the surrounding nations and false gods. And this is so so perverted and profane in God's sight. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had provided them with resources in the land that he had given to them. And they are using all those things they had given, that he had given them to craft idols and altars to the gods of the nations surrounding them. And it was so profane that God says, all I can do is compare this to a faithful and just husband who's going to marry a woman who continues to work on a street corner after they have been married. That's the only way that he could illustrate it. 
And so it's in this extraordinary setting that three critically important verses appear in chapter 6. And those three verses are important because Jesus quotes them not just to us, but to the Pharisees of his time. And so we're going to look at Hosea 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. And we're going to see that like spiritual exploratory surgery, these three verses will ultimately illuminate our own faith condition. Yes, it will expose the matters of our hearts. But it will also provide us with two clear action steps that you and I can take to restore the passion that God wants us to have in our relationship with him. So if you would, I don't often do this, but we're dealing with such a topic that we want to show difference to the text. So if you would, would you please rise for the reading of God's word today? And then we'll be seated. If you would, read with me Hosea chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm reading from the ESV. I can't remember what I put up here. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Thank you. You may be seated. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now this term steadfast love, it actually comes up in the Old Testament with great regularity. And this is the second time just in this little passage that we see it. A lot of times that we'll we'll call it loving kindness or, or steadfast love. It's a phrase very well known to any scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I hate to quote the original languages, and, and I, I really do hate to quote it. And the reason why is because it, it kind of makes us believe that this is either inadequate or incomplete when we're reading our English Bibles, and I don't want to give that impression at all. This is everything you need and you hold in, what you hold in your hands for you to have an active and vibrant relationship with Jesus and hear the gospel and be transformed by it and, and ultimately make your way into heaven. This is sufficient in every regard. But what I do want to do is illuminate a single, a single passage here, and it's a word that comes to us from Hebrew, and it's called chesed. Can you say that? Say chesed. Ooh. You know what? It's early, and that wasn't very good. But it's okay. Chesed. Chesed. English, Hebrew is a hard language. It's kind of like Klingon. But what we see at first in verse 4, if you look down, when you see, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. In Hebrew, it's chesed. And then we see it again in verse 6. For I desire steadfast love, that is chesed, both are the same term. Now, very lengthy academic papers have been written on this, and you go to seminary and you get to read them, and they're 25 to 40 pages long, and there's nothing interesting in it. But that's just how important this topic is when you're dealing with ancient Hebrew literature, the, the, the topic chesed. It's used 248 times in our, in our Hebrew in the Old Testament, 248 times. Now, to give you some sense of the scope of that, when you go and you study Hebrew, you memorize vocabulary words starting at 50 times or more, all the way down to 25 times or more, because they reckon 25 times for a word to be used throughout the Old Testament is a lot. So when you see 250, aha, you think this must be important. Well, it is. Now, I'm here to spare you the academics, but how we oftentimes translate chesed now in English, we have to kind of make up a word, and so we call it loving kindness. And if that's kind of a mismatch of a bunch of other words, well, it is, because it's very hard to gain the full range of meaning. But typically in the Bible, it describes God's essential stance towards people in general, you and I, right? 
And so one writer writes that it is the ongoing faithfulness and loyalty of God, particularly kindness towards men. And so Psalm 147 says, verses 10 and 11 say, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, and here comes the key, in those who hope in his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his chesed. In other words, we hear how God delights in hearing that we hope for and enjoy the ways that he has been loyal to us. And so God's ongoing and inexplicable loyalty, well, that's what we would think of as loving kindness, all right? That is chesed. Now, we put that on the table because I want you to see something very simple. That's not at all how Hosea uses that, is it? In fact, almost every time throughout the Old Testament, we see how God is the one who owns the chesed. But here, if you look at your Bible, Hosea has put the shoe on the other foot, and he's describing our loving kindness to God. But instead of displaying faithfulness and loyalty the way that God has shown you and I, Hosea describes something radically different. And it's so different, in fact, that it causes God to rhetorically ask what we think he should do with us. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What will I do with you, O Judah? Listen to what the faithfulness, our faithfulness sounds like to the God who invented it. He says that your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. It's conditional. It's here one minute. It's gone like the next. It's like a young person who's dating someone, and they're just absolutely full of passion, and then they stop talking about that person, and pretty soon the passion has cooled entirely. And where God shows a high level of commitment to us, we just simply don't commit to him at the same level, do we? Several years ago, I was, we lived in Chicago. I went to seminary and was working at a church in Chicago. And I was working with sailors at Great Lakes Naval Training Station. And uh, that's where boot camp is. And a sailor in boot camp is a funny thing. Um, they're just desperate for any help at all. And they really want to go home, is the two things. But I was working with one young man who had been engaged maybe two weeks before he shipped out to a, a girl that was there in Chicago. He was from Chicago, and he lived there in Chicago. And so what happened was that, that he goes, and he goes to boot camp, and I would never see them for the first section because they're not allowed to drink coffee or, or see a chaplain or eat food. So after maybe four or five weeks, I get a note from him, and he has this growing concern that in that, that three-, four-week period, he had not received one note from his fiance, not one. And I think that's a little bit odd. But sure enough, as time went along, by the time I actually had a chance to see him at week 10, 11, or 12, or whatever it was, still, he's been sending notes, and things in his life are changing, and he's committing to this kind of Navy lifestyle, and he's enlisted, so he's going to be in for four or five years, or whatever it is. And through all this, not once, not once did he receive anything from his fiance, and so that initial concern, and he's kind of asking me, hey, gosh, should I be worried about this? Yeah, you should be, because now it's kind of turned into this deep resentment, like, oh my gosh, she's, she must not care for me or, or love me at all, right? He had received absolutely nothing. Now, there's a lot going on there. But by the same token, something is always true that I think we can take from this, and it's this. Whatever we're passionate about, it has an outworking every time. Whatever we're passionate about, it always has an outworking, doesn't it? And so I actually had to tell him, yeah, I'm really actually worried about this too because if she loved you, it's not actually that hard to pick up a pen and a piece of paper and simply write a note. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's true. Because the truth is we always pay attention to the things we care about. We do. And you know this is true. I work in student ministries and family ministries and college and career. This is especially true 
when I'm talking to students, I'm not going to bag on them because they came and they helped me out today, but it's just true. When someone starts dating somebody for the first time, and parents, if you've had a teenager that's dating somebody for the first time, what do you hear about? You hear about the person they're dating. And as their pastor, all I hear about is the person they're dating, and they want to talk about the person they're dating, and they want to talk to me about the person they're dating, and they want to figure out why the person they're dating is doing what the thing is that they're doing, and on and on it goes. But then, by the same token, you know that it's kind of cooled off when what do they stop talking about the person that they're dating. And then they go to college and career, and it doesn't change. They're in college, but now they're dating, and they want to talk about the person that they're dating, and they want to bring the person they're dating to the college and career, and then finally, eventually, get, they get married, and guess what? They want to talk to me about the person that they're dating, and they want me to do the, the wedding, and now we're going to do counseling, and they're still so interested in the person that they're dating. Whatever we're interested in, whatever we're passionate about, that's the thing that we pay attention to, and it's always true. So hear how God describes Hesed in terms very similar to that of a betrothed not hearing from his fiancée for 14 weeks. This from Jeremiah 2.2. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, that is a virgin land. And he goes on to say, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? This from verse 5. In other words, God is asking his nation, what did I do wrong by you? I stood by you. I was loyal to you. I rescued you and I provided you with a land and then I gave you things in that land. I don't know what else I could do. So you tell me, what do I need to do differently? Now, somehow it would have seemed a little less bad if they had just kind of not been passionate about anything. But instead, they cheated on him. They were passionate for everything but God. They were wooed away by all the shiny things around them but God who had given them so much. And so if it seems that God is disappointed that their chesed did not in some way reflect his own, well, yeah, it didn't. And so he says through Hosea, what should I do? What does God need to do to excite passion from his own people. Well, he goes on to give us two things, and these are the two things that we can practically do, hopefully, to restore the honey, the honeymoonness. That's not honeymoonness isn't a word. It's our word for today, the honeymoonness of our relationship with God. And hopefully, it'll also give our relationship with Jesus some legs so that maybe 75 years down the road, when someone's talking about Jesus, most of us will be in heaven, but when someone's talking about Jesus, you'll see our excitement. And our passion's excited, and, 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 and we'll keep his letters too. You know what I'm saying? Two things. The first is this. It comes from verse 5, and it says, We must allow God to speak to the interior of our souls. I'll say that again because I think it's important. We must, oh, I even wrote it on the board. By the way, just a quick side note. I, Alicia is back there doing tech for us. And, and I had somebody else lined up to do tech and run this thing, and they just kind of weren't here today. And she just wanted to come and be with us. She didn't know she was going to. She's never done this before. And we just threw her into the fire. And we're like, you're going to do the lyrics and everything. So God bless you, Alicia. Thank you for serving. She hates me right now. She wants to like <laughs> get a right cross in the church parking lot. But it's okay. We must allow God to speak to the interior of our souls. So often in church, I think this is true. I don't know if you feel it's true or not. But I think that we hear a lot of things we already know. Right? And not just in church, but kind of like on Christian radio and then just kind of in surrounding like cultural Christianity. We just kind of hear a lot of truths. Some of them half-baked, some of them kind of bumper stickers, some of them profound. But the truth is we hear a lot of things we already know. And, and the truth is when I've heard something for the third or fourth time, 
I kind of stopped receiving it the same way, right? So there's a very big difference between the first time, you know, when I was dating my wife and we were thinking about whether or not we should be engaged. And I'll never forget the first time she kind of confessed her love to me, right? That was very different than when I left this morning, like 6.15 to go pray at the church. And she's like, I shouldn't tell you this, but she sounded a little bit like a drunk person. She's like, I love you. And then, bam, back to sleep, right? Because everybody in my house was asleep but me, right? Well, they're not exactly the same. They don't both carry the same pregnant weight, right? One is, and I'm not trying to put this on her, but one is a little bit rote. And the truth is, when we repeat something over and over and over again, that statement can lose its value, right? Now, I'm not saying that when you or I affirm our love for God and we're, we're worshiping or we're praying and we just kind of call out and say, God, I love you and I reaffirm that. I'm not saying that has no value, but what I am saying is that we don't always mean it. And so Hosea recognizes this and does something to get our attention. He uses a very kind of violent language. And he's expressing something that had actually recently happened to the nation of Israel. Because God, who had loved them, had watched them mingle freely with all these surrounding nations. And they had been so influenced by all of these other cultures. And they began to appoint kings that were not kings of God's choosing. And then they were stealing those resources God had given them. And they're making these altars and then these idols to put on the altars. And so it actually says in Hosea chapter 8, in 8.4, it says, They set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. And so God's first response here in Hosea chapter 6 is to just cut them open and lay them bare figuratively. And so he sends out prophets that are proclaiming an imminent judgment. But amazingly, even though it says right here in verse 5, listen, I hewed them open by the prophets. I cut them open by the prophets. It didn't have an effect. It didn't didn't do anything. And so someone came and stood in front of them, much like I'm standing in front of you. I don't want to fall off this thing. And and stood in front of you and, 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 and proclaims this imminent message of judgment. And then they just didn't change their heart space at all. So then he goes on to say in verse 5, okay, well, you know what? The next step, even though it grieved God, he allowed Israel to be cut. And if it was figurative before, now it's very literal. And as she's cut, the contents of her discord and enmity with God are now exposed. Even so, all the other nations surrounding them see. In Hosea 7.16, it says that when they're judged, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. That all the other nations surrounding them are going to see what happens when God cuts a cross, slice across them, and, and see what the contents of their heart is. Everyone's going to see it, and it's going to be humiliating. And so in verse 5, God says that's exactly what he had done past tense. I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. First cut was verbal. The second cut was very literal. God cut a cross section away like a biopsy and it exposed their spiritual cancer. And the truth is some did not survive this exposition. But the ones that did gained something very valuable. They learned that they were sick. Now, this violence we see was not for God's benefit. This blood wasn't spilled because he delights in bringing judgment. Don't you see that God didn't need this? This was for them. He was the faithful lover watching as his bride played with knives and the blade came closer and closer until contact. And so what we need to know is that God disciplined them as a loving Heavenly Father. And he allowed just the smallest percentage of the judgment that they deserve to fall. He allows that to take place. And that's what had happened. They were judged. 
But look carefully, there is an ongoing work of the judgment. The end of verse 5 says, And my judgment now, present tense, goes forth as light. It's the ongoing work of righteous judgment of God. That judgment continues to this day to illuminate our spiritual condition. And so as God cuts open a cross-section of our hearts, He applies this unmoving and unchanging beam of light. This is the truth. We could call this a profound spiritual truth. We could call it absolute truth. And so no matter how can we picture ourselves right or wrong in our own eyes, no matter what we imagine the balance sheet to be, it's kind of like a credit card where you kind of know you have some debt on it, but you really want that pair of pants. I'm just going to buy that pair of pants because I don't think it's so bad. And then the statement comes, and there are the cold, hard facts. Well, guess what? God says that his judgment is the cold, hard facts, and it completely lays bare our spiritual condition. And so what we can do is we can open up the Bible and we can read the same words of the same prophets that offer the same warnings. And we can read the same judgment and the same light of truth that God offered Israel is available to us and the Holy Spirit can illuminate our hearts. And so we can see in those moments and what we might find is that what we diagnose is just kind of like a fair weather malaise actually might be a terminal illness and God is interested in arresting it because he wants to discipline us because he loves us. And the mechanism he employs takes place here. That's what it says. He's talking about his word. And so that's what Hosea affirms the scriptures do. He says that they hew right from wrong no matter how we have married those two concepts in our minds. So before we talk about loyalty any further, what we have to recognize is that we cannot cultivate a loyalty for God. We can't incite our passions for God until we have allowed him to expose disloyalty that lies in our hearts. And if you're thinking that's not you, my friend, you're wrong. Because all of us, all of us have some real estate Deep inside that we know we have not subjected to Jesus' lordship and authority. All of us do. All of us at some place in our lives are holding something back. All of us are taking the resources that God has provided us in the land that God has given us. And somewhere in the back 40 of our hearts we're building an altar. And we're building an idol. And we're never really true from that struggle. And our only hope is that we return to the altar from whence we first heard of this king named Jesus. Open up his word, get on the knees of our heart, and wait to hear from him. And he will indeed be faithful to shine the light of his judgment on those places in our souls. And in those moments, we must dare to confess. We must. We must. So, my question for you is this. Do you pay attention to the things you're passionate about? You do. And I know you do because I do too. And a lot of the times paying attention appears, attention takes the form of speech, money, or time. So where do those things go? Men, do we talk about sports more than we talk to our wives or our God? And I just know from, from my own home, Uh, that we're guilty of this. Do we spend more time shuttling little kids around than we just simply spend at the throne of the living king? We do. It seems like there's all sorts of parasites for time and for money and for speech. But all of those things rightfully belong to God. 
we pay attention to the things we're passionate about. My friends, it's probably past time for us to perform an audit on our spiritual condition and allow God's word to cut a cross-section away and shine the bright light of his truth inside. I don't think we do this. I know I don't do this, and I think I know why. I think I'm afraid. I think I know what I'm going to see when, when God kind of applies that beam, when the flashlight's actually on what's happening in here. Now, I know that you're amazed to hear that because pastors really are perfect people, but that's actually just a horrible lie. I think we can be the worst because we just get really good at faking it. And it's a very fearful thing to allow ourselves to be laid bare in front of the living God and be judged. But far better now than later. So my question for you is simply this. Because I can't in good conscience not bring this up as much as I don't want to, although I don't know many of you very well, so I don't have anything to lose, but it's this. How long, if this is you, if you know that this is happening in your heart, if you see the tepidity in your relationship with Jesus, if you see the fruit withering on the vine, if you know that there's the abscess taking place in the heart, my question for you is how long can this go on for? If there's this real estate that you hold in reserve, my friend, know it will hurt you. And if you're playing with knives, you will get cut. You will. Hear it. It's the truth. We must allow the righteous light of God's truth to invade the deepest places of our hearts. That's the first thing we can do. The second is this, and it comes to us from verse 6. Seminary was quite a a shock to my wife and I. I I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, I, I went a little bit older. I think it was 28, 29 when I went. And I had had a career as a musician before. And when we went to go, we had been working at a church as a music pastor, and I just thought this was going to be great. And so we had this very highly romantic view of what seminary would be. We actually sold like half of our stuff because we just wanted to go and live for Jesus, and we want to just pay for seminary and just learn about Jesus. And oh my goodness, we got there, and that's not at all what it was like. The very first day of Greek, I showed up with a pen and a notebook, and we had a quiz And I didn't even know a quiz was coming. And I was supposed to have the whole Greek alphabet memorized the first day, Tuesday morning at 7.20 in the morning. I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? And my Greek professor, my first one was sadistic. I don't think he liked anybody. He, after a couple weeks, decided that seminary wasn't going to work for us. Now, never mind that we had sold our home and all of our belongings and had moved to Chicago. Never mind that that God had, had appointed these elders to surround us and pray for us and appoint us and send us out and commission us to go to seminary to prepare for ministry. Never mind all that stuff. Seminary is not going to work for you because you're having a hard time remembering the 18th letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm not sure for this person, for all the head knowledge, I'm just not convinced this poor person who was kind of bitter, angry, and resentful, I really now genuinely wonder about like the state of his spiritual well-being. I do. And he was a teacher. He wasn't a teacher long. He got fired after a semester when 16 people dropped out before. But, but it was not the only person I met like that. I, I taught at a preaching lab, and this is the worst thing. If you, if you want to hate your life, preach to a bunch of theologians. It is the worst thing you will ever have to do because they take notes, and you know what they're writing down is not like, oh, this person has like this great insight. What they're writing down is, he kind of stinks, and here's how he can improve. But I remember I was preaching out of Proverbs 3, and the gist of the message was, hey, If we're obedient to God, a loving Heavenly Father, He will provide for us. And there was one young man over in the corner who just, I could see, was like visibly upset by this. And so we went around to do the comments, and they were supposed to be echoing feedback. He just said, you know, I'm not sure that I believe that that's true. I said, well, that's not a problem with me now. You're just arguing with the Scriptures. That's what the Bible actually says. 
And so it got into this kind of a debate, and finally the professor had to stomp on it. Now, in retrospect, what I would do is go back and just say, what's going on in your life that you don't actually affirm that God provides for those who, who, who love him and obey him? But the point is this, out of all these people that I met, and there were many, the truth is that you can go to and teach at a seminary, or you could go there for four years, and you could learn all there is to know about God theologically, and you could never once worship him. In fact, they had no way to even measure whether or not anybody did. You could just live there and fill your head with all this amazing knowledge about God, and never once actually get down on your knees and just admit that we desperately need Jesus the way that the song we just sang talks about. And that's not just true of seminary. The truth is you could go to church your whole life. And you know what? You could sit here in the pew. You could even sing along with the songs. You could memorize this book from beginning to end and not ever once actually have worshipped Jesus as King. And the reason why is because we can know all about God, and we can never know God at all. Now, Hosea in chapter 6, here in verse 4, or in verse 6, I'm sorry, we see him bring this idea of chesed back around, and he explains exactly what God wants to see from his people. Look at it with me, if you would. He says, for I desire steadfast love, that is chesed, and not sacrifice. Wait a minute. You're telling the, the Jewish people that you don't want them to sacrifice. Okay, let's just call that what it is. And then he says, and I want the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Wait a minute, that that seems crazy. After Jesus began the work of his earthly ministry, we see six or seven hundred years later, this issue had still not really been resolved. Theologians of Hosea's time and then theologians of Jesus' time, they really didn't figure this out. And so sometime after the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 9, we see Jesus, and he's gathering to himself some pretty rotten people. He's gathering tax collectors, he's gathering prostitutes, he's gathering theologians, and he's gathering other sorts of sinners. And just as a side note, I just love this, so I'm going to just point this out, because this is great. Again, I know that you were surprised earlier to hear that I'm a sinner. Actually, Kevin told me that some of you all are too, believe it or not. I've heard that about you. What great news it is that we find in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 9, that it's the sinners that have a place at Jesus' table. And so what we can say is, if you are a sinner, and that's some of us in here, you belong here today. And we praise God for that, right? But it says that Jesus had gathered some of these people to his table, and so Matthew 9, 11 through 13, 13 says this, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's why we always say the church is not a museum of the perfect. It's a hospital for the sick, right? Um, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And then, uh uh-oh, here it comes. Now he's talking to the Pharisees when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the theological teachers of his age. These were people who had memorized whole huge chunks of the Old Testament, and then memorized books that were talking about the Old Testament, and then memorized books that were talking about the books that were talking about the Old Testament. These were the people who were explaining to people in the temple what the book of Hosea is about. And Jesus says to them, what you need to do is you need to go and learn about what this means. 
Because for all that intellectual study, they had missed the key principle that was true of God in the Old Testament. It is true of God who is Jesus sitting there right in front of them. And it's true to this very day and we dare not miss it. God's desire is not for you to just practice an empty, repetitive religion. It is for you to enjoy an active relationship with him. And in Jesus, you and I have received something that we can't explain, but we have a perfect term for it. And it's described by Romans 5.8 perfectly. But God demonstrates his own love for for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, just like the tax collectors and just like the prostitutes and just like the thieves and just like the theologians, Jesus came and preached a message of repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins in his death and resurrection. And so we call that theologically the unmerited favor of God, but we have a shorter word for it. It's grace. Yes, chesed and grace are inextricably linked. And in the person of Jesus, the chesed of God is fully explained and realized in an instant as he becomes the sacrificial lamb acceptable in God's sight for our wickedness. Now, nothing you or I have done deserves that. And what he hoped for in return was not an empty appeal to the law. Although, hear me say that God does delight in obedience. So don't tell Pastor Kevin that I came up here and said you don't have to like obey anymore. Because that's not what I said at all. But what we are saying is that obedience does not purchase salvation. It doesn't buy God's favor because nothing can. It comes free of charge. It's forgiveness that costs so very much. And so Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you see how God had provided the sacrifice even then? It was he who provided the animals. It was he who provided the fire. It was he who provided the grain. God had always provided for the sacrifice. And so it doesn't make sense to take that and just return just that thing to him. He has enough sacrifice He could always make more. What he wanted returned was the chesed, the love. And so the Bible gives us an illustration of a disappointed lover who watches his beloved seek after something other than his love and seek after something so terribly profound that it actually hurts God's heart. And yeah, now you you probably see we're not talking about Hosea anymore, are we? Because Jesus would die for those Pharisees, and he did. He loved them so much that he was willing to give his life for them. And so what he's obliquely telling them, and then by them and by proxy us, is this. It was Jesus. It was Jesus who was the faithful lover standing at the altar marrying the prostitute. We are dealing with two vastly incompatible worldviews, my friends. And one worldview suggests that you can keep your eyes focused on the culture around us and love it desperately and be fully involved with it and just kind of practice religion as if that's good enough. But I'm just here to say it's not. Because the other worldview says that you take your heart and your religion and you just give them to God. It's a retraining of our minds and our hearts based on what God is looking for from his people. Now, if it seems like I'm preaching to the choir, well, I am. But you know what? So is Jesus. The only people who can commit this sin in Hosea 6.6 are people that fill the pews of every church in North America today. The people that already know the difference. God does not want us to return to him an offering that has become divorced from the heart. He's not interested, and hear me say this very carefully, because Kevin, 
I don't want to shoot Kevin in the foot, but I'm just going to tell you what I believe to be true. God is not interested in your presence here, how you spend your time here, your hard work here, or your money here, if it has been divorced from a heart that loves him. He can always generate more of those other things. What he's eager for is people to love him. And he tells us exactly what he wants right here. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice to God to come back. He wants us to be loyal to him, even when it's difficult. And then he goes on to say, but I want the knowledge of me rather than burnt offerings. God wants us to know him, not know about him. You don't need to go to seminary to know him. You don't need to to go here and just know about him. There's tons of people that know about him. The Bible actually affirms that even the demons believe essentially that Jesus is true and who he says that he is. The Pharisees knew all about him, but they didn't know him. In his book, Jim Packer, I'll just close with this, wondered how we get there, how we translate this kind of like bog of spiritual tepidity and lukewarmness, so to speak. How do we get our knowledge about God into the knowledge of God? And so he writes this. It's very important. He says, the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God, which we do all the time, we, we learn truth about God all the time, but I think what we do is either compartmentalize it or we just kind of move on, right? But he says, we take that truth we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. In other words, your spiritual life does not live in a vacuum where you could have your heart exposed to truth in the Holy Spirit and, and you have an active prayer life and then you're never reading your Bible. It just doesn't work that way. You are a very complex, interconnected spiritual being. And if you're not ever praying or you're not ever spending time with God privately, then this won't multiply to you the same way. But when we do read this, what Packer is saying is that we face a moment of decision when the Holy Spirit has kind of cut us open and exposed what's there. Do we move on? Do we relinquish it? Do we let it go? Or do we translate those moments into a powerful moment of confession? When's the last time you sat down and you prayed and the Holy Spirit said, gosh, you're, you're doing this terrible thing and, 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 and you just said, you know what, you're absolutely right. I'm just going to have some confession right now in front of you. And then if we're confessing, do we meditate and memorize the scriptures that we're reading? And then do we take that and then let it motivate us so that when we're here and we have a band playing and, 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 and playing these great hymns and we're just like, you know, this is absolutely true. We're marrying that to the scriptural truth that we've heard earlier. And you see how we're becoming to be this in, in, interconnected being that, that is intimately familiar with God. Do you know about him or do you know him? That is the only question that matters. Now the band's coming up and we're going to respond with a, with a hymn today. But first I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray about a couple of things because I think there's a couple different kinds of people here. The first is there are some, some here and I don't, 